Welcome to the Action Network Podcast, the number one show for the invested sports fan. Ready? Ready. All right, here we go. From the 10, throwing end zone. Spectacular catch. They're saying it's a catch. Touchdown. You see, most gamblers, when they go to gamble, they go to win. Oh, my God. That's incredible. <laughs> Big bank, small bank, I like to make money. All right. That is the ultimate kibosh. You want to bet? <laughs> and we are underway. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another NFL episode of the Action Network Podcast. I'm Matthew Friedman, the Editor-in-Chief of Fantasy Labs. I'm joined by two of the best in the fantasy business, Sean Corner and Chris Raybon. Sean is the Action Network Director of Predictive Analytics and one of the top in-season fantasy football rankers for the past half decade. And Chris is a Senior Editor and Analyst at the Action Network. Fellas, we have got a special episode today, one that everyone will definitely want to share with people who are getting ready for their fantasy drafts. It is a fantasy 101 episode or what we're gently calling, not boldly, but gently calling the expert's guide to fantasy drafting. Oddsmaker, Raybon, are you guys ready to act like fantasy experts? Always. <laughs> Always. You were, you were born ready. If you like our recent episodes, do us a favor, rate and review the show, subscribe, unsubscribe and resubscribe. Guys, let's jump into it. So this is a kind of big picture focused episode. If you are, you know, a quote unquote fantasy expert, I think you can still get a lot out of the show. Uh, But this is maybe intended a little more for the people who aren't quite as hardcore uh, or for the people who maybe don't play as much throughout the offseason, but are just kind of getting into their draft prep part of of the offseason. And I think we should start by talking about positional strategy. Uh, and that seems to be like one of the things that people focus on the most. Uh, are you going uh, robust running back? Are you going zero RB? Are you going late round quarterback? Uh, so there are lots of ways that people can kind of structural ways that people can uh, approach their drafts. My question is, and Raybon, we'll start with you. What are some of the, the big picture kind of positional focused ways in which you are approaching your drafts? I think you want to get as many feature backs, three down backs as you can early in the draft because they're not going to be hurt by poor game script. If they get, if a team gets down, they can still catch the ball. They're getting a lot of usage. And the number one thing that you can use to predict running back production is always volume. It doesn't matter if a guy is like, you know, 3.9 yards a carry or 4.3 yards a carry. If he's getting 20 carries, he's going to put up numbers. Uh, you really want to get those running backs because there's a lot less of a supply of them than wide receivers where you have, you know, pretty much the NFL has morphed into a shotgun league. They use shotgun on about 60% of the plays now. So there's always three wide receivers on the field. That means 96 wide receivers when you look at all the teams. And a lot of those guys will be viable. But running backs, uh, there's not many backs that are getting a lot of volume. And so you always want to kind of lock those guys up, even if it means taking a couple risks early in the draft, maybe in those third, fourth, fifth rounds, that frozen pond tier that Sean likes to call it. You know, it's, you're going to need startable games from your running back because running backs get hurt more than any other position. They average about two to four missed games a year. So let's say you start three running backs or, or two running backs in a flex. You're going to need, uh, you know, those two running backs. But if they're going to miss, let's say, three games, now you're already down to, you know, that's six games you're going to be without. So you definitely need like a third quality running back just to make up those like expected six games missed. Then there's going to be times when, 
you know, there, there's tough matchups, you know, unexpected things happen. Maybe a guy just doesn't perform up to expectation. So you're going to need a, a, probably even another running back to cover for him. So you don't want to just kind of um, overlook that and, and say, hey, I'll just get one of these. Uh, maybe if you're in a PPR league, you think I can just get one of these guys that catches a lot of passes late in the draft and be fine. You have to also think about the startability, the predictability and, and uh, of that startability. Like you always want to try to get those guys who are getting those 15, 20 touches a week early in your draft and just lock up or attempt to lock up as many of them as you can. Sean, Rayvon has talked a little bit about more of a, a robust running back approach. What are your thoughts on that? And then also, do you have thoughts on the quarterback position? The running back position is the most important in fantasy. It's the most volatile, you know, hardest to predict year to year, but it's the most valuable at the same time uh, because of that. And we have to remember, running backs typically get injured more. They, they get tackled the most out of any position. And they're usually, you know, the smallest frame on the field. Um, so that sort of lens of their volatility is just the injury concern that every running back's going to have. We're sort of in the era of the running back by committee. Back in the glory days when I first started playing fantasy football, there used to be just one running back and they would get every carry and they would play every third down and get every reception on the backfield. That just doesn't happen as much anymore. So these workhorse running backs, they're super valuable right now. So that's why they're a must draft, in my opinion, um, if you have the first, one of the first three picks. Because of the variability and unpredictability, um, you have some people that like to shy away from running back early. I'm not one of those people. I typically shy away from the frozen pond here because I think those are sort of the guys that we don't really know their role, what their role will be. With that kind of variability, I don't like spending early draft capital on them. When it comes to quarterback, that's typically the highest scoring position in fantasy football, but also the most predictable. Um, so that's why you don't see experts taking quarterbacks very early is because there isn't that much of a drop-off as there are at the running back position. So um, experts typically wait till the end of the draft to take a quarterback because there's plenty of valuables still, you know, sitting there later. Two of the positions I actually don't even draft at all in my fantasy drafts are kicker and defense. Unless there's some rule where the league kind of forces you to take that, I typically don't draft a kicker defense and use the waiver wire to pick the top kicker defense each week. By freeing up those two extra slots of the draft, I just add two more running backs. You know, heading into the season, I like to have six to eight running backs on my team and try to catch some late preseason injury where, um, you know, all of a sudden I have a starting running back on my team. So I, I like to load up as much as possible at running back heading into the season because of that. All right, let's talk about the, the flex position there, because I, I think running back, if you have a lot of running backs, one of those guys is likely to end up being your flex player. Uh, Sean Siegel from Rotoviz uh, has talked about uh, like the race to the flex and the flex is being kind of the key to, to winning your leagues. Uh, Sean, do you have uh, kind of strategies when it comes to what you're doing at your flex position? I do not have any specific strategy um, heading into the season. I, I think the flex position itself is much more of a week-to-week -week decision that you're going to have to make. So I recommend you read my uh, weekly rankings breakdown to sort of see which players you should be plugging at the flex. Um, I actually add in some flex rankings in that to help you out across positions. So flex position isn't some strategy I have going into the season just because every week 
you're going to have various injuries, bye weeks, depth chart, shuffling around. So it's not something that you can really plan out that far in advance. I, I consider that a week-to-week decision that you have to make. John said it all. It's just, you know, you shouldn't have a rigid strategy. It's going to be a week-to-week thing. Running backs are, on a weekly basis, like coming into the week, running backs are going to be more predictable in the sense that we can count on them usually for, you know, more touches, whereas a wide receiver, we don't always know how many targets they're going to get, and those tend to vary a little more. So running backs are usually ideal, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you might have just a bunch of good wide receivers, and then you're going to need to play a wide receiver. So another reason that you should be loading up on running backs so you have those predictable players in a given week because running backs in good matchups they tend to produce like for example running backs have better stats at home they tend to have better stats when their team is the betting favorite as well so um you know because that puts them in in good situations um teams run a lot more when they're you know in a, in a competitive game or a game they can win which we'll talk about in a bit so um running backs are ideal but yeah don't don't ever get caught up in a rigid strategy with the flex just play it week by week Obviously, uh, every draft, every league is different. Uh, but do you guys have preferences in terms of where you want to be selecting in the first round, which obviously impacts where you're uh, selecting in the second round and third round and so on? Would you rather have a pick near the top, in the middle of the round, or uh, near the end of the first round? If you're trying to get better at fantasy drafting, the last thing you need to really be focusing on is the first, your first round pick or your second round pick. Those are the two easiest things to do in the draft. And it's one where, you know, it's hard to mess up. It's, you know, if it, if it messes up, it's usually just because it's some bad luck or something like that. But um, from a strategic standpoint, I tend to like drafting a little later in the first round and near the turn. And for two reasons. One is, if I'm drafting right at the beginning, now I also have to wait like 20 picks to, to get more players. And if I'm at the end of the round, I can get two kind of top 10 guys or top 12 guys, which tends to be a little better than like one top guy. And then two guys who are just like fringe top 20 guys, because when you're picking at the top of the draft, it's just normal regression to the mean, like a guy you're drafting at the top, the only place he can really go is down, you know? So um, I tend to like being at the near the turn because not only am I getting better players, but also if you're at the turn and you're trying to execute the strategy that Sean mentioned, which is wait for a quarterback because you're going to be able to get a very usable quarterback late in the draft and on the waiver wire throughout the season for those positions that you only need one player to start at. If you're drafting and you're waiting on those positions, when it starts to come time, you need to select that guy. If you're maybe there's one or two drafters in between your spot and it coming back around to you on the turn, you can now look and say, okay, well, I need a quarterback, but the two guys that are going to draft after me, even though there's four picks between them, they already have their quarterback. So I don't think they're going to draft another quarterback here. And so I can wait and I can get another running back or another wide out or whoever else I need to and still get good value on the quarterback I'm looking for. So that's why I like it from a strategic standpoint. Just it helps you wait on those one starter positions a bit longer. Sean, do you value those high volume running backs so much that uh, you prefer the, the top picks in the first round? I really don't care. If I end up with the eighth pick, I'm not going to sit there and complain about it. It's all about the middle to late rounds and in-season management when it comes down to winning a championship. I think the first few rounds, it's going to come down to injury luck. There's really no bad picks being taken in the first three rounds. I like being in the middle of the draft for the middle to late rounds because when you have a end pick, say the first pick or last pick, it 
tends to force you to reach umpires a little bit because you don't know who's going to make it back. So you kind of have to be a little more aggressive on guys that you like. That's an advantage that the middle rounds have. You're, you're kind of more aware of who might make it back to you. And it's a little bit easier to sort of snag value in the middle round because of that. Let's talk about ceilings and floors and volatility because I kind of view these as two separate things in season, obviously week to week. I think there's a lot of uh, there's correlation between volatility and ceilings and floors like that just makes like mathematical sense. But before the season starts, I think people tend to conflate volatility and range of outcomes a little more than they should. So for instance, there's the possibility that a running back might have a very wide range of outcomes, but he could become the starter. And during the season, he could week to week be a very consistent player. Before the season starts, there is a kind of a difference between uh, range of outcomes and, and volatility. But I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. And specifically, when you are looking to target, we'll say kind of quote unquote, like upside in your draft, And when you're looking to target floor uh, stability in your draft, Uh, Sean, let's start with you. When it comes to season long, there's just so much volatility already that I don't tend to think in terms of, you know, ceiling and and floor as much as you may think. There's just so much volatility. I tend to save that energy for uh, weekly projections and DFS um, just because there's less margin of error when it comes to that. One of the the main big picture things that I think most novices sort of fail to see is just the general expectation of, you know, or range of outcomes when it comes to taking players. An example would be people taking Christian McCaffrey first overall this year. If he does not put up the top running back numbers, I have people reach out telling me he was such a bust this year because he was the number five running back. And I think we might know that, you know, taking him number one overall doesn't mean he's supposed to put up the top points, but I think a lot of people overlook that. Um, What that means when when you're taking him first overall, he's just basically the most likely running back to put up the most points. Uh, But I put his odds around 35% that he'll actually end up being the top scoring running back in 2020. And you might think, well, why would I take a guy with that low of odds? And the answer is because he has the highest percent chance of being the top scoring running back. No one else has better odds. So just when when you draft players, you kind of have to know that wide range of outcomes that's just inherent when it comes to fantasy football. And I think just having that mentality will help you sort of build a roster around that and you know do appropriate in-season management things um, that we could talk about a little bit later. But I think just having an overall big picture on you know, just the expected range of outcomes is massive when it comes to season-long fans football. Rayvon, I think you have an interesting way of approaching ceilings and floors when it comes to preseason, like drafting before the mm-hmm. season actually starts versus your weekly in-season methodology. Can you talk a little bit about how you're approaching ceilings and floors? Yeah, so I actually do like to look at range of outcomes. Sean mentioned it's so important, and every player is going to have a a certain range of outcomes that you have to be aware of. So what I like to do is I like to look at receptions per game, yards per game. Those stats tend to correlate a lot more from year to year. Touchdowns are are what's really volatile. So I spend a lot of time looking at projecting the catches and and the yards and or for running backs, just yardage. And then, you know, touchdown projections, I, I don't spend as much time trying to like nail them down as far as okay, I need exactly what this player is going to produce. I just want to know more what is the range of outcomes that he's going to produce because that informs me about what the median should be. So 
if you kind of understand that part of of analyzing players, then it gives you a lot more informed view. What a lot of people do is they, when they're trying to draft, they say, hey, you know, why are you so low on, low on a guy or why are you so high on a guy? I think he's going to do exactly this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, that's not exactly how you should think about it because if you're attached to one outcome, you're going to start making a lot of mistakes. If you're just acting with the knowledge of the different ranges of outcomes, you're going to cut down on your error rates because you're already looking at what the error rates would be. Even us as experts, we're going to whiff on a lot of uh, projections. We're going to make a lot of mistakes. There's no such thing as you know being able to have a perfect draft. So it's really about understanding that and then drafting to make up for those mistakes which is again why you know Sean talked about it going robust at running back you know loading up with an extra with extra running backs so that you instead of a kicker in defense so that you might get an extra starting running back uh, for free it's because we know that injuries are going to happen we know that some offensive lines sometimes just completely fall apart and a, a, a good running back just has a poor season so that's why it's important to think in in, in that way yeah and one thing kind of following up on it that I think is attached to it in some way is uh, sample sizes people miss thinking about range of outcomes because they're not thinking of of larger sample sizes so for instance Melvin Gordon and Todd Gurley if you looked at them after their first two seasons, they had very similar numbers, but most fantasy drafters looked at them differently entering year three because they focused primarily on what the guys had done the year before and not the total production for years one and two. I think if you have a, a larger sample, a larger scope, you tend to think a little more holistically about the range of outcomes and, and what guys could do. Because if anything, you can also just see more seasons uh, and you see like, oh, this guy, even though he might have similar usage or he's with the same surrounding players or the same coach, the same offensive system, one year he did this and another year he did that. That gives you, I think, uh, like a, a much stronger sense of the, the range of outcomes there. Let's talk about the draft. So much focus is on the draft. And that makes sense because that's how you get the first iteration of your team. And especially for people who are playing best ball, that's the only version of the team that you get. What is the role of rankings? And by the way, I should say, again, we have rankings available at actionnetwork.com slash fantasy. What is the role of rankings of ADP? How do you uh, adjust on the fly when you are in your draft? This might be the most important point I wanted to make in this podcast, because so many people let's face it, you're, you're going to just be drafting off expert rankings. Like you don't have time to make your own projections and compile your own rankings. So you have to understand how to draft off rankings. And what this means is if you see a player I'm high on, for example, Michael Pittman Jr. I have Michael Pittman Jr. ranked 118th, which is a late ninth round pick in 12 team weeks. When you get to the ninth round, you shouldn't be thinking, okay, I'm going to draft Pittman because Raybon has him ranked there. No. That would be wrong because his ADP is 171st overall. You have to wait until deeper in the double-digit rounds. You have to remember that, okay, this is a screaming value that I can still wait on and get a little later. That's how you draft off rankings. You also have to factor in average draft position. So the best situations are always when your own rankings or somebody else's, whoever you're using, are so um, high or low, on, especially high on a player that – even if you, let's say, quote unquote, reach by maybe you take him around before his ADP, you're still getting a value because of that player is such you, you think that player is such a value. So that's how you use rankings. You should never just use an ordered list and say, well, this ranker has this player ranked, you know, 90th. And so when I get to 90th and he's still here, I'm taking him like, you know, if he's ranked 90th, 
um, but his average draft position isn't till the 150th pick, then you should be waiting until like around the 130th, you know, 140th pick to actually be taking that player. And if you, if you do that, that's how you start building a team with plus net expected value because you're getting value on all your picks. You're not just drafting off rankings, which is where so many people go wrong, especially since they use like the same rankings like ESPN or whatever it is, you know, and they're just drafting off a list. And that's, you don't want to draft off a list. You want to use that list to find the value and compare it to ADP. And that's how you build a good fantasy team. Sean, do you have any follow-up thoughts on that? And I'm also curious if you have thoughts on uh, how you decide how many players at each position you are going to draft, like how optimally to construct, at least in the draft, what you might think of as like the ideal percentages in terms of like positions for your roster. I don't really have a fixed number, but I definitely like to have six to eight running backs and zero kickers or defenses. From there, I I just kind of go at the flow of the draft. You know, when it comes to comparing rankings versus ADP, like Raybaugh mentioned, I think this is super important. And one of the biggest mistakes I see people make when they use my rankings, um, they typically use them to a T. So they're taking guys that they can get three or four rounds later. And when when you do that, you're actually killing the value that you Mm -hmm. That's what makes a great value pick is getting him a couple rounds later than he should go um, but but when you do the opposite you're actually destroying the value you're you're you know um, not putting yourself in a good position another thing though is ADP can get kind of stale so you know when people are drafting the next couple of weeks and we have a lot of movement going on a lot of injuries preseason games you have to be aware of that a good example of this is back in 2017 draft. drafting during some breaking news during uh, the game where Spencer Ware got hurt, you know, everybody knew it. And, you know, Kareem Hunt's ADPs reflective of, you know, the last two months of drafting and not at that moment. So I kind of had to update on the fly where I wanted to draft him. You kind of throw ADP out the window. And that's just an important point to make is uh, just be aware of what guys the ADP might be stale because um, any recent breaking news, it takes a while for ADP to catch up. As good as anyone is at drafting, everyone makes some mistakes. Uh, And even when you don't make mistakes, you still have players uh, who bust, guys who go against you just because that's what happens. And so I'd be interested in knowing how it is that within the draft and then also within the season, you look to mitigate your downside knowing that at some point in the draft, you probably made some suboptimal decisions or guys that you counted on didn't pan out for whatever reason. You just have to be aware of the supply and the demand and of the error rate. So again, when you're drafting running backs, for example, there's a certain expectation of missed games. When you're drafting quarterbacks, the reason, one of the reasons we wait is because, and you learn this if you play, if you play DFS, you know this, Quarterbacks are extremely matchup dependent to where, sure, you have a guy like a Patrick Mahomes crushing in every single matchup or Deshaun Watson crushing in nearly every matchup, but then you have 25 other quarterbacks that were not. They'll tend to perform well in good matchups. Uh, They tend to be at home more. They tend to skew towards um, being a favorite more, but not always. The bottom line is you're going to want to switch guys out based on matchup. That's another reason why you don't want to draft quarterbacks early is because just because you draft a quarterback early doesn't even mean that he's going to be matchup proof or that he's going to 
um, stay healthy. This is football. So that's another thing. You have to be aware of the injury chances. And I think in general, injuries get a little bit overlooked, especially to someone who's a very more casual drafter who kind of unplugs from NFL season for, for seven, eight months and just kind of comes back when it's time to draft is that there's all these injuries and players recovering from different things and, and injuries that are occurring. And you kind of just you're like, oh, well, as long as he's there and he, you know, he, he's, he's on my list, I can take him and he'll, he'll recover and he'll be fine. Well, it's not always like that. And then the players that are healthy, you can't count on them to stay healthy. Even when you look at something like the correlation of games played from one year to the next, there really is none. Essentially, you can't predict injuries from one season to the next. Some guys do get injured more often, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to sit here and say, okay, well, because this guy didn't get injured or did get injured, he is or isn't again. And so, therefore, you have to prepare for that, um, and especially at the running back position. And at quarterback, you know, you, you're going to have all these options that it doesn't make sense to kind of blow a higher pick on, on a quarterback just because it feels safe when, in fact, it's a lot safer to kind of account for the – your kind of error rate with running backs and to an extent why receivers uh, at later parts in the draft by, you know, loading up on those guys, because remember you need that, you need those touches and you, for the running backs, so you need those targets for the wide receivers and those guys, they're going to go down. Um, or and sometimes you're just going to, again, hit on, hit a bust or something like that. So the best way to avoid those risks, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but it's actually to just take more quote unquote risks on more running backs and more wide receivers and have a, a deep roster and you're going to be fine at quarterback uh, unless you're in like a two quarterback league, then that's a whole different strategy. Um, but in, in, a, in a traditional league, it, you just, you, the best thing you can do to kind of improve your chances to win is just wait on a quarterback and build depth. Corner, how is it that you try to mitigate any mistakes that you might make during the draft? When I draft, I figure I'm going to be making mistakes. Whenever I look back at, the draft from the previous year, I'm like, Oh God, I took that guy in the fourth round. Um, you know, things happen. And I think this is where, you know, the handcuff strategy for running backs really comes into play. If you take Ezekiel Elliott in the first round, the fate of your team is going to be dependent on his health. So you'd want to create a safety net for your team. If you take his backup, Tony Pollard, he'd become a low end RB one um, in the event Zeke goes down and that would help mitigate that loss a little bit. Um, so I think handcuffing, is a pretty good strategy to kind of um, have sort of safety net in situations like that. And also when it comes to the quarterback position in general, I typically have my starting quarterback be a more safe guy. And then my backup, I try to just swing for the fences and just take a ridiculous upside guy because if he doesn't pan out, you can usually drop him and pick up some boring guy that can just fill in on the waiver wire. So I typically make a lot more, aggressive swing for the fences picks later in the draft because you really have nothing to lose. Let's talk a little bit about research and preparation. Everyone is kind of different with their process in terms of uh, how they consume content and, and what they consume. And if they do mock drafts or if they do a lot of best ball leagues to try to prepare for the standard redraft leagues they do later. Sean, what is your general process for preparing for drafts? Mock drafts are super important. It's definitely good to sort of practice what we discussed earlier, balancing draft rankings and where people go. When you do a mock draft, you can kind of see how far guys can fall and then just sort of see where you're kind of liking certain positions. You want to try to practice at different parts of the draft too. So maybe do a mock draft where you have the first pick and a mock draft where you're sort of in the middle of the draft and then a mock pick 
you know, at the end of the draft. I think getting sort of the different perspective from each draft slot is super important and helps you, you know, plan out your um, attack because your draft pick does dictate sort of what kind of team you end up with. So it's, I, I think it's super important to uh, practice those. So I think one question might be mock draft versus just consulting ADP. Do you think that there actually is a lot of praxis to going through the process of having to select a team versus just consulting ADP and having an awareness of the general range in which players are being drafted? No, I think it, the practice does make perfect in this case. You kind of see which situations certain players always end up you're having to decide on. So you might find kind of a tier where you kind of want to dig in a little bit deeper and uh, sort of see which guys you rather end up with because you know a lot of drafts you have a minute and 30 seconds to make a pick so you don't want to panic so you want to stick with your rankings as much as possible but I think you know just doing a mock draft sort of gets rid of all those kinks that you might encounter if, if you don't practice at all it could turn into disaster. Yeah it's it, the mock drafts are really important because Again, like what Sean said, it helps you to visualize how to actually execute during the draft, which is going to, you're going to be under pressure. Unless you know absolutely nothing about anything, a lot of times I would suggest, you know, even as somebody that, you know, is a producer of fantasy content, I would say, hey, if you know a little bit about football, and you're, but you're just like searching out endlessly for content, trying to figure out who to draft, like just do a mock draft because it's going to be so eye-opening for you. And, and there's a little shortcut. Um, well, first of all, I should say that when you do a mock draft, actually finish the draft. Because I see so many people do mock drafts and they mock like the first five rounds and then they, they leave the mock draft. Like that, again, like the drafts are one in the middle and the late rounds. And so the, the, the early rounds are the places where the players are the most predictable and um, they have the highest floors. And a lot of times if you make a bad pick there, it's not necessarily because you're a bad fantasy drafter as much as you just had bad luck and, you know, somebody got hurt or whatever not. But the draft is one in those middle to late rounds. And so a shortcut I have for people, even if you don't want a mock draft, what I would suggest is upside down draft. And what I mean by that is get a, get a list of ADP. Make sure it's up to date. That was a really important point that Sean made. Make sure it's up to date. Um, but in general, it, it just needs to have a sense of where players are going. And then look and start from the bottom, not the top. Start to look at what players are values um, starting from the bottom. So, for example, the old adage of wait to the last two rounds to draft kicker in defense, which Sean just, you know, made even better by just don't even draft them. You know, why did you do that? It's because there's always going to be a surplus of those guys available at the end, right? So you have to do that same thing for the rest of the rounds of your draft. So let's say you start and you're starting in the 14th round and you're looking at who's going to be available in a PPR draft. So now you say, okay, I can bank on being able to get a wide receiver in this 14th round, some good value here. Now I'll go to the 13th round. And you kind of repeat that process all the way up to the top of the draft. And that will give you a lot clearer picture of what to expect. And you won't be caught as off guard um, when you're just drafting for the first time because you have a, a really good idea uh, of how to make your early picks because you know how the draft will unfold in a sense. And I think that's really important. And it's a, a reason why Sean, myself, you Friedman, we all kind of tell people not to go into the draft with too rigid of a strategy because all of these kind of trendy strategies are top down strategies that you're kind of focused on what to do early in the draft. It's really not looking at what you're going to do later in the draft. And that's why I always love late round quarterback because it's so, it's so sound 
in that it's thinking about what's going to happen at the end of the draft. A lot of these other, other strategies are so reactionary in the sense that they're just like, oh, well, this is what's going on at the top of the draft and this is how I have to react. And then when you start to get to the middle and late rounds, which is where drafts are really won and lost, you have no idea what you're doing. So I'd say take an ADP list, even if you don't mock, and just take an ADP list, start from the bottom, go up and just look at the value that's there in each round and what you think you would do on each round of the draft, starting from the bottom and going the way up. And I guarantee you will improve your, your real draft. Totally agree with what you said there. Uh, it is ironic that the draft obviously starts at the beginning of the draft, like at the, the top rounds, but the bottom rounds uh, kind of mentally are, I think, where you want to begin the preparation mm-hmm. for your draft. Absolutely. And w- one thing that makes, I think, late round quarterback very strong is that uh, it's not just that you can find a quarterback late in the draft is that you can find multiple quarterbacks late in the draft so that if one is gone, it kind of doesn't matter. Maybe that's the one you would have wanted, but there are still other guys there. You have multiple outs. And so I think if you're building your strategy from the bottom up, you want to identify like a, a range, like several options that you could get in that round where you would be satisfied. Because one of the things that does happen sometimes is if, if you get your heart set on a particular guy in a round, someone could snipe him a round or two early. So you, when you're building from the bottom up, you want to give yourself multiple guys, you know, three or four wide receivers that you would be fine taking in the 14th round. So I think you want to give yourself contingencies for all of those bottom rounds where regardless of what happens up top in the first half of the draft, you know that in the second half of the draft, you still have multiple guys that you can take and you still would have executed your strategy in, in a way that gives you a really good chance to, uh, to enter your season with a strong roster. Let's talk a little bit about game scripts, right? So once the season has started week to week, one of the main ways in which you want to think about who it is that you're starting on your roster is by anticipating how the game might play out by, by looking at who is favored, by looking at some of the matchups and thinking about what that, mean, what that might mean for the running game and the passing game for the different teams. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about game scripts. And Raybon, let's start with you. Um, what are your thoughts on them? How do you kind of evaluate them for the purposes of thinking about who you're starting or who you're sitting or in DFS, who it is that you might be rostering and investing in? Yeah, game scripts, they essentially just refer to, you know, what a team's run pass ratio will be depending on the situation in the game. And so this is crucial uh, most often for running backs, particularly in standard leagues when you have running backs that they don't necessarily catch a lot of passes. So if the game script goes negative, which means their team gets down, many times you will see them either come off the field or just not be as productive. And so you always want to think about that when you're choosing who to start, uh, especially at the running back position. Um, so the way you do this is you, you can look at the, the Vegas lines. That's a key indicator. A team that is a favorite will tend to have more positive game script than not. But you also have to keep in mind too, that there is error rates within that too. So a lot of times people make the mistake in DFS of going, yo, okay, this, this guy's on a, a favorite. Um, he's going to have good game script. I'm going to play him. But guess what? You have to also know 
how often Vegas is wrong. And, and a lot of times that can help you make a contrarian play. And it can be the same thing in, in your season long roster. You really do want to give some thought to who to start each week. I don't like the whole just start your studs or start the guys you drafted early in the draft. It's so matchup dependent and it's not just game script. Game script is just kind of the overarching thing. But in general, fantasy is extremely matchup dependent. And if you can just have a little bit of an edge and, and think about that for a couple of minutes when you set your lineup each week versus just starting plugging in the guys you drafted first or plugging in, you know, whoever your quote unquote studs might be, um, you're going to give yourself an edge because almost every player in the league is matchup dependent, except for like the guys that are going to go in the first round or in maybe some of the second rounders. That's really it. Everyone else. It really depends. If you look at splits between home road, favorite underdog, all these things, there's a huge skew towards uh, being at home and being a favorite is even better. Uh, With passing, it doesn't matter quite as much the game script per se, because you pass to win, um, to get at lead. You you should be trying to, uh, teams try to pass to get a lead. They tend to pass to get leads. Uh, Passing is more common in the NFL. And then if a team gets behind, they'll still be passing. So Uh, I don't think you need to say, make the mistake of saying, hey, oh, this team is a big favorite. I don't want to target their passing game because they're going to get a weed. Well, hey, if they're if they're getting a big enough weed to where they can sit on the ball, they probably got it through passing. So that's fine. But it's the running backs. You really if you have and that's another reason to, to get robust on running backs, get those six to eight running backs that Sean mentioned is that you want to have choices each week. And another thing I want to mention, too. Is this kind of a myth that some of these receiving backs, particularly third down backs, uh, only do well when there's negative game script? That's, that's not true because uh, a third down back, the concept of a third down back is actually uh, very inefficient in practice. If you look at the numbers, when NFL teams throw to running backs on third downs, those tend to result in non-conversions which lead to punts or you know field goal attempts or whatever more often than not then you know throwing to a tight end or a a wide receiver so if you're banking on a player oh he's a third down back this team is expected to be down that's not actually optimal because if every time he's catching a pass on third down he's not likely to actually be picking up the first down so you're getting a couple of points for that but you're not getting any closer to getting that touchdown because the team is punting and a lot of times what happens is when the team is in negative game script everyone's bad you know when when you get in a really poor situation uh, a lot of times just the whole team underperforms they don't get near the red zone there's not many touchdowns scored that's not optimal so you want a team that can kind of continue to to, to keep the foot on their gas and, and that tends to happen more when there's positive game script than negative. So I agree almost entirely with what Raybon said with one small amendment for things like home and road and Vegas numbers. Those are much more important than the individual matchups, except for maybe in the extreme. Like I think for basketball, who you're playing against is actually really important. And for something like baseball, who is pitching against you as a batter is really important. But for football, ironically, coaches maybe aren't as good at exploiting the weaknesses of opposing defenses as they should be, unless a team is playing a defensive unit like that in the extreme is really like very good or very bad. It doesn't impact so much like the the efficiency or maybe the uh, the touches or the opportunities you could project for the players. There tends to be like a pretty wide kind of median there. So what would matter not necessarily is who they are playing. I guess it matters to the extent that it impacts the Vegas lines and things like that, but it doesn't matter so much for uh, some of the other things that people might project, but we have on here the projection master. So I'd like to get Sean's thoughts on that. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's a case by case basis, and it really depends on the team and matchup. But you mentioned it like home away splits. An example would be Big Ben typically has done way worse on the road and is just a beast at home. There are certain coaches like Bill Belichick. Um, you know, the Patriots definitely are good at exploiting the defense that they're playing's weaknesses. So that's highly factored in as well. Uh, but you're right. I think sometimes people overestimate individual matchups, but there, there's no blanket assumption that you can make across it all. It's just um, there's so many factors that go into it um, that I'm incorporating in my projections and rankings that it sort of all matters. It, it depends on the strength of the defense, but you know that's sort of what I'm factoring in um, in everyone's projection anyway. Home road splits especially go very overlooked a lot of the time. And some people kind of argue that, hey, these are all noise. You know, the one blind spot if you may, that we have a little bit is the offensive line, no pun intended, in in the sense that there aren't as many metrics or, you know, just the average viewer of an NFL game cannot really analyze the offensive line as well as they can look at a quarterback or running back. And when an offensive line travels and these big guys go on the road, um, they tend to kind of have a rough week in terms of they're sitting on a plane. They're, they're kind of cooped up in hotels. Um, they're, they're out of their element a little bit. And it just, it has like these like tiny little effects that tend to show themselves on the field. And if you just look at large sample NFL numbers, teams don't run as well on the road and, and they don't, they don't pass protectors officially on the road. So road games are tough for every NFL team. Team, it's, it's a really tough matchup. Final question here. I think it's been a great show. During the season, there are two ways, really, in which you add players to your team, either waiver wire or through trades. So I'm interested in your approaches to both of those, especially in a lot of home leagues. Both of those are, are pretty important. From my personal experience, people don't really like to trade with me. It sounds fun. <laughs> Uh, I wish I could do it, but people just don't trade with me. So I don't have as much experience. <laughs> but trading is a fantastic way to sell high and buy low. Uh, a perfect example from last season would have been John Ross. He was a popular late-round flyer um, in some of my leagues, um, given his upside. But a- after his fast start, he was actually the number one wide receiver in fantasy after week two. At that time, it was unclear you know, if or when A.J. Green would make his season debut. Obviously, it turned out he never returned. Uh, But it was also unclear if Ross would be able to keep it up. So, you know, given his streakiness, it would have been wise to sell high at that point. You could have flipped him for a guy like Cortland Sutton, who was drafted much earlier, had a ton of potential, obviously, maybe a more stable role. He was only the wide receiver 35 after week two, so you could have had an impatient owner flip them. Unfortunately, Ross ended up getting hurt. Cortland Sutton ended up being the wide receiver 15 from week's three to 16. Now it's not always going to be that perfect, but that's a situation where you could have flipped a guy um, at his peak and then get, you know, a guy like Sutton when he was um, at his bottom in terms of value at that point in the season. It just goes to show it's a great way to siphon value from willing people to do that. So you want to exploit your league mates, trap them, if you will, and, you know, giving up massive value the rest of the season just because of, you know, some early season results. And, you know, the waiver wire is super critical for championship teams. I think it really helps build a championship lineup. You got to be alert. One of my favorite in-season strategies is to stash high upside backup running backs. So when you have a ton of uh, backup running backs, you know, if, if the starter were ever to go down, you know, they would individually become fantasy plays. 
The, the best example of that was Latavius Murray. Uh, I had quite a bit of him last year. So when Alvin Kamara went down, um, you know, I plugged him in and he was actually the number one running back overall for those two starts in weeks seven and eight. Um, another example would have been Wayne Gallman that I had in a couple deeper leagues. So when um, Saquon Barkley went down, you know, I was able to plug in Wayne Gallman week four and he ended up putting up the sixth best running back score that week. There's a ton of examples like that uh, year to year. This year, those, those similar backs that I'll be loading up on are guys like Tony Pollard, like I mentioned, um, Chase Edmonds, and Zach Moss, just to name a few. But, um, you know, you could check out my upside running back rankings piece to see the, the full list. It's also important to know when you get a guy off the waiver wire, if you're getting more of a two-week rental from the guy, if, if it's a running back and the starting running back is out for a couple weeks, you're only going to get that value for a couple weeks as opposed to a guy that's going to have rest of season value. Those are the guys that I typically shoot for if I have a number one waiver um, or have a ton of free agent auction bidding dollars available. Those are the guys to really target. I mentioned earlier how I don't actually draft a kicker or uh, defense of the draft. Um, what I do during the season is just stream the top available kicker or defense um, using my weekly projections each week. Um, you know, you're typically going to get a top five kicker defense based on my projections. Um, so most years, I'm actually able to generate a top five kicker and defense just by streaming the top available ones each week. Gives you a considerable edge, in my opinion. I would strongly advocate for having a free agent acquisition budget versus waivers. I think it makes it much more equitable. I think it's also much more entertaining to see uh, the, the bidding process and to let that unfold versus just knowing, oh, this guy has the number one waiver priority. He's going to get the, the player that everyone wants this week. Rayvon, what are your thoughts on trades and waiver wires? Look at the schedule. Get a sense of it for the entire league. So you can not only find players that you want to kind of sell high on, but you also want to find players that may have been performing poorly just because of some bad matchups. For example, if a, if a wide receiver has a, a tough slate of cornerbacks and you know, all of a sudden they're sitting here and it's week four or five and they have no big games, you know, that's when you want to really look at the schedule. So there's an opportunity here to buy low. And, and just in general, with the waiver wire as well, as Sean mentioned, you know, just you want those multi-week guys, and you do that by looking at the schedule. And so if you have a guy now that may be coming up with a, a tough slate where he has you know, tough matches, whatever it may be, you can think of unloading them. So just kind of being able to look a few weeks ahead. Sometimes even what can help you is if you're doing the whole kicker and streaming defenses thing, you can find a, a kicker or defense that is actually pretty, you know, going to be the, the best for two weeks in a row, or you can find one that is going to be the best next week and you can get ahead of stashing it if you have the space. Just kind of knowing what's upcoming on the schedule is really important. Okay, that will do it for this episode of the Action Network podcast. You can follow Sean, Chris, and me in the Action Network app at the underscore odds maker, Chris Raybon, and Matt F. The Oracle. Use the app to get real-time odds and track your bets for free. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you again next episode. 